This is the 3D Pod, your number one source for 3D printing news, analysis, and insight from 3dprint.com. Now, here are your hosts, Joris Peels and Maxwell Bogue. Hello, everyone. My name is Joris Peels, and this is another episode of the 3D Pod. And with me, as always, is Maxwell Vogue. Hey, Joris. How are you doing today? I'm good, Max. I'm very, very good. How are you? I'm good, thank you. You know, summer is just around the corner. Spring seems to be over before it even got started. And here we are, enjoying a 3D pod. <laughs> Who do we have on the pod today? Well, today we've got Laurelyn uh, McDaniel. And Laurelyn, uh, well, we got started uh, essentially in, in the medical life sciences and went to SME. Uh, was a standards authority, and was the industry manager of device manufacturing for a very long time at SME. And uh, just that's all about how the SME handles medical device manufacturing and standards around that area. And later on, uh, she worked at ASME, uh, the American Society of Mechanical Engineers, and now she works at something called Metrics, which uh, sounds like a new van, maybe a new electric van by Ford. But uh, but Laura Lynn is going to tell us all about about it. And I think well today. I mean, there are very few people uh, that I've ever met anyone that know more about just generally standards of medical device manufacturing and, and specifically standards of medical device manufacturing and and, and AM or three D printing uh, out of manufacturing. So I think uh, yeah, it's an honor to have you here, Laura Lynn. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. I am thrilled to be here and chat today. Okay, cool. But first, tell us about this thing. So you're working for ASME. Now, all of a sudden, you're working for something called Metrics. What's Metrics? Metrics is a part of ASME. Uh, We are effectively the industry, community building, and content source of ASME. So uh, we do many things, just building communities. Uh, My focus is in additive manufacturing beyond just the medical, but also aerospace and automotive. And an exciting new area for me in the last three years is the energy space, particularly oil and gas and renewables. Okay, okay. And what does that mean? Do you you mean you you, you make data available or you publish data? Like, how does that work? (laughs) Yeah, is this for money? Well, you know, any organization, even even a not-for-profit, has to pay for themselves so they can keep right. going. So that we effectively are doing that. We also are a bridge to all of ASME resources for industry. Uh, but it does mean that we publish papers, we do reports, we do webinars, we even do events, and we have our Next event coming up quickly, but uh, they are focused on the four industries uh, that I mentioned in additive manufacturing. Yeah, the first thing I, I was like having a conversation with John, who, who's like the owner of 3dprint.com. I was like, are we now competing with a standards body? <laughs> like, what does this mean? <laughs> like, uh, what? Uh, we, no, no. Well, first of all, there's so much work to do in additive manufacturing that there is so much room for everyone. What we're doing is more based on talking to the community and pre- sharing perspectives and uh, viewpoints and connecting people with each other. I think the connecting part is our driving force. Okay, okay. That sounds, that sounds very interesting. It sounds like it'd be useful. And 
talk to us a little bit about just, just standards generally. I mean, we've seen a lot, everybody's kind of convinced what standards are, you know, that standards are required in our industry. We, we all are looking for standards, but like getting, you know, we are seeing how they're, what's the current status of that, that, that ongoing project to get more standards to AM? There is so much going on in stand in developing standards for additive manufacturing. I think the earliest efforts, I remember sitting at a table in Chicago with industry people talking about the need for standards. And two years later, a collaboration between SME and ASTM kicked off ASTM F42. Back in 2014, there was a workshop to see about accelerating standards development. And NIST became engaged, America Makes took on the project and reached out to ANSI and they created the Additive Manufacturing Standardization Collaborative, which is a long title, so AMSC. (laughs) (laughs) And effectively, that has really kicked the development efforts into high gear. It is not a standard development effort directly. Instead, it's bringing the community together to identify existing standards, what standards are needed, the gaps there, and the priorities for those gaps. And so many SDOs, standards development organizations, are using that as a map or a roadmap, which was the intention to set their priorities for additive manufacturing. So while ASME is uh, my parent company, um, I'm also deeply invo- involved with ASTM F42 and the AMSC efforts. So it's nice to see how people are carving out their particular part of it and just moving forward to publish new standards. Uh, so it's an exciting time. Uh, we def- I, One of the things that we do is a year in review reports for different industry segments. And every year for the last couple of years, there have been 10 to 20 new AM standards published. So a lot of people involved and a lot of work. And I need to go back to a moment for standards that sometimes when we're talking about standards, people don't understand why they're needed unless they use them all the time. but with, particularly in additive manufacturing, the thing that's off, the word that's often missed in talking about standards is they are consensus standards. And what that means is you take multiple professionals with years of experience agreeing on this is the way it should be done. And effectively, it becomes your method to learn quickly based on experience, and you don't necessarily have to make your own mistakes to figure it out on your own. Okay, okay. Is there a particular success in, in the additive manufacturing field that you guys feel you've achieved or that this, everyone has achieved so far that we should look at as the, the light, so to speak, of uh, what to follow? I always point to the very first standard that was published and is updated every two or three years. And that is the terminology standard began as an ASTM standard and now is an ISO ASTM standard. 
it is the one standard they make available to download for free so anyone can use it, right? So it's, it is important when you're trying to work on accelerating a technology that you have a common language. And so this has been uh, just kind of a foundation for everyone. And even those who have, you know, brand names for their technology will play into the standard processes, which is a big area. So it it has been very helpful from that aspect. I think I still want to like punch people in the face or say FFF though. Uh. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> but, but um, okay, okay. But um, I think I think that that really helped because I think maybe people didn't realize, but before it was like rapid. Uh, what was it again? Like freeform fabrication, rapid prototyping. What was the other ones? Uh, rapid manufacturing, whatever. There was like so many terms dotting around, and also I, I've had so many th- situations. I had literal situations where people are like, "But that's a different technology. That's called laser cusing, right?" <laughs> or yes. or people saying that that's. But wait, what's the difference between uh, like uh, selective laser melting? And so, and uh, and laser sintering, right? I'm like, it's a bunch of German guys arguing a long time about something they should have settled a very long time ago. Um, you know, it's, it's like these things that were, and they were actually really absurd situations where I've had clients that were looking for systems, and they didn't think they could find something comparable because they thought it was a different technology, even though it was just a different marketing name. You know, so yeah, I think that's uh, that's yeah, that kind a of a lot like, to be said for a shared vocabulary so that we can all communicate effectively. So no, that's a good good one to point at. <laughs> yeah, so definitely, and, and talk to us about like it's, I think one of the most exciting things is, is what you spend most of your career on is is this medical device thing, right? And we know that's really uh, that that medical device manufacturing is really exciting. Like first off, I seem it seems to me that the FDA is really helpful, right? In, in in this kind of thing, and and the standards are really kind of helpful. But how do I get started with that kind of thing? How do I know when I can make a medical device and how I have to do it? Yes, that is, I've been working with medical device industry um, nearly as long as I've been working with the additive manufacturing community. And in the early days, which is 20 years ago, um, every device manufacturer I spoke to did not want to talk to the FDA unless they absolutely had to. What the FDA has done in the additive manufacturing space is really reached out to the community to get input and feedback to help guide them and to help them understand what it was and how it was used. And so that has not only been their approach with device manufacturers, but also with point of care manufacturers or hospitals. So right now they're, they're working on, they published a discussion paper earlier this year, which lays out a concept framework for regulatory kind of compliance at the point of care. And so that involves the device manufacturers involved with that. uh, The hospitals are involved with that. The people who develop the technology and serve the hospital are also involved with that. And so I've been lucky enough to be a facilitator for many of those discussions to bring people together. Um, And it's everyone is, it all comes back to everyone involved is focused on improving patient care and seeing the great advantages that 3D printing can bring to not only educating uh, patients for them to better understand what's happening, but also the potential of developing 
patient-specific approaches that is right in line with medicine's overall trend towards precision medicine. And I'm really interested in this patient-specific. I used to be like a real like unabashed believer in this. And then I started looking at one example, and, and that's the example of the patient-specific uh, kind of like um, uh, orthopedic implants. And I was really enthusiastic, but then I talked to a bunch of like surgeons and stuff like this, orthopedic surgeons. And they were like, well, I'd rather not have it unique, but I would really want, rather have like 20 sizes instead of five or maybe 60 sizes, right? That's much easier to control and that's much safer than having everything unique. And that's really, you know, then I really got to thinking like maybe that whole patient-specific thing isn't, we should only do it if it's like super totally necessary because it's just so, we get so much complexity on the manufacturing side, right? It absolutely is complex. And right now what the orthopedic implant manufacturers are doing is using that technology to take advantage of the design benefits particularly the complex porous structures for in-bone growth that are necessary. But many of them, uh, all of the largest orthopedic implant manufacturers, are creating and packaging with their implants patient-specific cutting guides. So they choose the size, and then they have the right cutting guide to make that simple. I would say, in, and there are early indications that there will be devices. Uh, I have seen at least two mm-hmm. uh, that have received 510K clearance that mm-hmm. are designed to be patient-specific. And that obviously involves quality programs that can be adjusted. The FDA requires kind of uh, these windows of how far it could go to make it patient-specific, that the process will still be validated and verified depending on what size or which different features may be included. I will say that some of the work that's going on right now with these kinds of implants are kind of laying some groundwork for when we get to full-on bioprinting, because all of that by its nature will be patient specific. Mm-hmm. But on, on the current stuff that's available that's patient specific before we get off into bio, is it as simple as like the doctor has a slider in software that they're moving about and they're picking Excel versus like large, for example, before then hitting print, so to speak, to try and limit the parameters and make it consistent on one level so that you're passing standards? Or is it more free flow than that? Are they like programming G code, so to speak? No, they're not necessarily programming G-code. There's uh, two aspects to it. So for the truly patient-specific, or right now what's going on with orthopedic implants in particular, is there are cases where truly unique and custom are needed. And custom has uh, a regulatory word, so we don't necessarily call that a patient-specific. It's truly a one-off for very unique anatomy, unique problems that have to be addressed. And generally what is happening there is based on the medical imaging, usually in MRI or CT scan, the surgeon is working with an engineer to design that implant. And at the moment, once it's designed, it is sent out to actually be printed. There are a handful of hospitals who are kind of leading the way 
with some in-house capabilities. Uh, One of the best examples is the Hospital for Special Surgery Mm -hmm. in Manhattan, where Lima Corp, which is a contract manufacturer, has a facility within the hospital for special surgery. And they announced in the last few weeks that they had successfully printed their first patient-specific device and uh, it was being implanted into the patient. Uh, Other hospitals, Walter Reed um, has had for many years a metal metal machine, which is what is needed for many of these implants. And they have done some cranial implants and other things. Um, And the other one that's leading the way is uh, Mayo Clinic. The uh, headquarters in Rochester, Minnesota, Uh, acquired their first metal machine. It's been two years now and they are still in the development stages, but their goal is to be able to produce some of those custom and eventually patient specific devices in house. Is it because they could get like some kind of like, uh, what is it? uh, The compassionate uh, use authorization, these kind of things. They could just on a case by case basis ask for this or, or do you think it's better to, because that could be a case, right? You get somebody, some patient in like the hospital for special surgery is like, I think they do more knee surgery than anywhere else on the planet or something like that. You know, there could be somebody who walks in who just needs a one, like a really one-off thing, like really only one-off. Like they have some bleeding edge cases. And then there could be a whole class of people. Is that the difference between these patient-specific and this compassionate use kind of things? Or That definitely gets to the heart of it because there has always been a pathway for truly custom devices that are needed for patients. And so that is one of the best cases I remember was uh, actually a Mayo Clinic patient based from their Arizona office uh, facility, sorry, and a patient that really just had a truly messed up hip in large part because they, they had dwarfism and there was nothing serialized or off the shelf they could possibly use mm, for this particular yeah. patient. And so that was a case where they worked closely with engineers and uh, a manufacturer to design and build that particular device. Okay. okay. And in a more other, cause it just seems like it's, it's scary. This whole, cause you would have to define like, you kind of alluded to this. You would have to define like the thinnest wall thickness or something like that, or the or the or, or the sharpest. And how do we define this bounding box, if you will, or all the the series, the the different kind of sets of possibilities one of these implants could 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 you know aspire to be, let's say, and still keep it safe. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. no, I don't want it safe. <laughs> we absolutely want it safe, and so. There definitely are some, uh, the mechanical properties, the uh, weight that it has to bear. So they start with kind of a standard design. And most of the customs, the key kind of features are not necessarily changed. It's more the attachments and where they're going to achieve that osseointegration to grow into the bone. to do that. So those kind of, so for example, the Mayo Clinic uh, implant was for a hip, the acetabular cup or that cup and the ball portion of the implant 
did not change. They were sized appropriately, but the basic design did not change. It was all the things around it because it had to attach differently than in a traditional patient. And so those, the mechanical properties uh, are were very critical. And in the last few years, uh, the growth of modeling and simulation uh, platforms available specific to additive manufacturing have been a huge help. They can use some AI and those sorts of things to test the design, to you know, model it and do some virtual testing before they have to finalize the design and implant it in the patient. Well, are we there then? Or is that enough? <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> is, is, That's is it. it. Your organs are ready. Hey. Yeah. You know, <laughs> you know, there is so much more to do. Uh, let me go back to the patient specific for a moment. Um, the biggest difference is that while we've always been able to customize a device mm-hmm. to, not always, but we have for the last 20 years or so been able to customize a device to fit a particular patient. First thing, the additive manufacturing process has shortened the time frame to do that. So instead of, you know, months, we're down to, you know, a week, two weeks to be able to get that custom implant. The patient-specific route is really more about the workflow of the design and the design limits and knowing that those all work and that it's from the beginning designed to be individual. Uh, So it is a very different kind of workflow process. It is more, has more in common with what the hospitals do with anatomical models than it does with production of orthopedic implants from the front end workflow. Now, once you're into building it, that's when it has more in common with production additive manufacturing. And then, and then the additional thing is always, everybody's always talking about AM and, and like, but we all know, especially like think of these, the, these implants, right? They come out of the machine. And what I always like to say is we make the, the shape, we make the shape on the machine, but the part we make in post-processing. <laughs> and, and so, uh, you know, we get these, these parts and, and we've got the machine and we, we were looking, we're paying attention to that. But after that, we've got like de-stressing, we've got hipping maybe, we, we've, we're going to maybe shock peen it or, or tumble it for a week. How do you incorporate that kind of uh, variability in, in that kind of same kind of process? So for any medical device, uh, the quality requirements by regulation, um, not just by the FDA, but any regulatory body, requires that the entire process, the process from sourcing materials to delivery uh, to the hospital, to the patient, is verified or validated. So part of the thing with uh, these complex devices in particular is considering that post-processing in the very beginning. Uh, For example, all these porous structures most often are built on powder bed fusion systems. You obviously need to do all that final finishing as well as sterilizing it. But there's a step that 
other industries don't need, necessarily need to take into consideration, and that's the cleaning. And I always say that, you know, if it's not clean and you sterilize it, loose powder within a device is still not good. So, uh, you know, if you think about if you've seen a spinal, infu- spinal fusion device, a knee implant, uh, a hip implant, all those complex porous structures, you need to design it to be able to clean it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's absolutely the post-processing is a consideration from the very first step. And is that, does that mean that we're going to see more and more standards get reached right into these kind of processes? Or is it just going to be like an endpoint kind of standard, like this is what you need to do for, for the standards body, let's say? Is like the a standard goal body, yeah. yeah. There were a couple of efforts and gaps that uh, the SDOs are taking a look at that were indicated by the AMSC group. And that is one of them is actually designing to be cleaned. And so... Okay. It's part of the process. It is absolutely part of the process. So that's one of the big ones going on. ASTM F42 has released design guidelines, which aren't quite a standard, but are a very useful tool to lay out all of these considerations when you're designing something that's going to be additively manufactured. The other thing that I think is really scary, actually, is also on the software side. We know this and when we're making parts, you know, you change the version of your software, you change the tool you open the, the SDL in, or you change the type of file or how do you convert it, and all of a sudden you get a different file. I mean, is there a lot more going to happen on the, on the software side as well? Well, there's more work going on, but ASME uh, published what we call VNV40, which is Validation mm-hmm. and Verification 40, and actually received a reward an award from the FDA for the work. This is a standard to validate and verify your software that is used in your medical device process. Um, There's actually a segment of that is also specific to VNV for anatomical models. Mm -hmm. So impact within the patient specific area Mm -hmm. for uh, anything in the medical area. So there is continuing work on that. Uh, some of the VMV40 has impacts for software in other AM areas. What might be surprising to many is the crossover between the use of additive in medical devices and uh, the aerospace industry. Both highly regulated, both have similar processes. Sometimes they uh, even use the same materials. Uh, titanium being the leading one, uh, very similar considerations have facilitated discussions between the FDA and the FAA. The FDA in particular is is a little ahead of the other regulatory agencies within the U.S. on their focus on additive manufacturing and providing guidance to the industry and the community as a whole. So it's I'm always excited about the commonalities and when different industry sectors can learn from each other. Yeah, that to me is, is really exciting too, especially if since yeah, it was a mess before, let's say. So I think any kind of guidance uh, to do that. So if I had software, I'd have to get a clearance for it as well. But this is this is BMV 40 thing. Does it help me get, obtain that clearance or is it something I do before or after? Or? 
Well, it depends. If your software is considered a medical device, Mm -hmm. so for example, uh, Materialize and uh, 3D Systems both have software that is cleared as a device, so the anatomical models are not just for education, but can be used uh, for surgical planning and for diagnostics. So Mm -hmm. in that sense, the software becomes a medical device. Now, some of this modeling and simulation software is not considered a medical device. It is considered a manufacturing tool. However, when you're using that as part of your process to produce a device, you will have to demonstrate that you have validated or verified that the software is working as expected. And uh, VMV40 is considered one of the recognized standards by the FDA. And what that simply means is that when you're making a submission, if you indicate we validated this software using this standard, they know exactly how you did it. If you don't, you have to document every step of how you did it. And you have to figure out how to do that yourself as well. Yeah. Exactly. You know, big companies, especially medical device, also know how to do this. But startups are always like, move fast and break things. And, and they're really... <laughs> not the human body, though. I know. Yeah, no, not people. <laughs> and then, but, but I found that they're like, first off, they're kind of like not into this kind of standards and regulation which I think is scary. And on the other hand, they're also really afraid of it at the same time. They're, they don't know where to start. So where would I start? Let's say I have a startup. I just made my first, like, you know, a cool software tool that might be used for, you know, let's say, a, you know, a medical device tool for, oh no, like a, the easiest example would be like, like the bolus thing that 3 Systems has, like turn a DICOM file into a, into a, medic, uh, a medical model. Like how, where would I start even? Like, imagine I have this software already. That's already too late, right? <laughs> if we're being honest. <laughs> <laughs> well. Um- the easiest thing would be go to VMV40 and go through that and uh, validate your software. Uh, we do have another tool uh, that's called uh, VMV Review. It is, we ha- did have, while the medical device companies won't necessarily share with you exactly their process that they've developed. Really? They will <laughs> provide you with a roadmap. Uh, okay. And that is what the VMV review document that we posted a couple of years ago Mm -hmm. uh, leads startups and people through to where to go to find the resources and Mm -hmm. that sort of thing. Uh, So there are some great tools. And I'll say most of the added manufacturing community is more than willing to point you in the right direction. They won't do necessarily the work for you, but they Mm -hmm. will tell you where to find the resources uh, to do all of that. And that is one of the things that metrics does. That could be, that could be really helpful. I think, especially for, I think a more mature company, if you will, if you've got a couple hundred people running around, you're you're more likely to know what, what, what you're doing already. But I think definitely for startups and stuff, this kind of thing could be really helpful. Absolutely. And that we do, I just met with a, a startup earlier this week and they are on the right path. And, uh, definitely working towards launching a product. So it should, I'm excited to see when it comes out. And for that kind of thing, I mean, I think if we're looking at standards and stuff, they, they help and the clarity, but you're kind of like presenting it like it's all kumbaya, my lord, and one big like happy barbecue, right? But I do know that people come to a standards meeting or try to get involved in these things with a predetermined agenda to kind of like stack the deck to, to, towards their own technology or their own thing, right? 
how do you work together in that in good faith let's say <laughs> i think that's the power of a group is that there's always uh checks and balances when you get groups together you get a device manufacturer together with uh somebody who builds machines or provides materials along with sort of neutral sources um, like myself or even representatives from the FDA. I can say the FDA group is very involved in the standards developments process itself. So they provide a great kind of check like that's not working right now. Uh, There is a meeting next week with the medical applications group of F42 to really discuss the existing material standards because many in the medical community are saying they don't fit their needs. What about for standards that are for something like bioprinting, where we're still very much in its infancy? Um, we were starting this before, but I'm curious, like how, does, how do we develop a standard for technology that really isn't even there yet, per se, for example, like for the holy grail of making an organ? Obviously, we need standards before they start actually making the final organ that they did on implanting on someone. But it's like, how do we get to that point where we can even say, like, we at least have a framework of a standard um, for them to be looking at as they're developing this technology at the same time? Ideally, we'd love to have the standards before anything happened. Was started, right? Yeah, but that's actually not how it happens. So if you think about medical devices and orthopedic implants, the first 510K cleared device was released uh, over 10 years ago, more than a decade ago. The first standard specific to that medical devices for additive um, and some of the additive processes were released five to seven years later. So for bioprinting in particular, uh, we do work closely with the Advanced Regenerative Medicine Institute. Uh, that is the bioprinting tissue fabrication equivalent of America Makes. And they have a group called the Standards Coordinating Body, which is the equivalent of the AMSC. And so both ASTM and ASME are in the process of developing standards. ASTM's group is working on standards for bioinks. So those are the materials that go into printing scaffolds and can include living cells. ASME is working on standards for the nozzles. So the work is being done. There is a, we have different researchers and there are companies out there doing commercially available. They are smaller companies, but they are all involved. So it is the, it provides a balance so that, you know, that one company's way of doing things doesn't dominate. Mm-hmm. That's where the right. consensus comes in. They all agree. <laughs> And how do you get involved in this? I mean, I don't think like, you know, it's not like somebody where like, so I know people that want to be a doctor since they're like five and stuff like this, you know, or be pilots, you know, at one point, when did this whole standards thing, when were you like, oh my God, this is what I'm going to devote my life to? Well, I actually <laughs> didn't. So this is, this is really weird. Mm-hmm. Um, I ended up in the best possible place and doing mm-hmm. the, the work that made sense, but I started off 
looking at whether I was going to become a journalist mm-hmm. or go into physics. Okay. Oh. <laughs> That's quite the difference. <laughs> yeah. It is. But if you think about it, you know, trying to find the story, trying to find out what people need, and then understanding technology and how it all fits together is the essential of, of what I do. And I did start my my career working for a managed healthcare firm that was owned by a hospital and just really understanding, oh, okay. So I'm a certified health insurance associate, and I know more about health insurance in the U.S. than anybody outside of HR has any business knowing. (laughs) (laughs) But it has been very helpful to understand the overall medical process. And I found this position working in product development, which was effectively developing conferences geared towards engineers. And that is where I discovered my inner geek. And as I started working with these communities of people and understanding what their challenges were, I became an advocate for standards because I saw the value and how they could ease the way for people to use technology. I'm excited about new technology and if you have some guidance, you have some standards to kind of point you in the right direction and tell you what not to do and what to do, it just shortens that learning curve. And so I saw a huge value in it. And for the most part of my career, I have been an advocate for people getting involved. Um, And other than the terminology, I stay away from judging the truly technical standards and I'll leave that to the big tech brains to to sort that out. And actually, in my previous previous life, SME was not actually a standards development organization, even though mm-hmm. they led the way and we were supporters and advocates. And so when that was when the work in the standards area really took off. And where would you like it to be? Like, if you're looking at, well, just look, look, look at metrics or something like that, or standards in general. Which, are, like, where would you like this to be? And like, if you're looking at a five year time frame, what do you, what do you, where you hope, what we'd hope you we've achieved on the standards front? One more standards, obviously. I also, because there's so much work to do to get more people involved. That is one of the things metrics is working on is creating that, creating more visibility for the work that's being done in standards and providing pathways for people to get involved. On the on our website, we do have a get involved section and there is a direct link to the ASME additive manufacturing standards work. So people can see what's happening, they can get involved. There is the AMSC and ways to get involved with that and understand it. By the way, I think the roadmap from the AMSC is one of the best tools for someone new to the area to go through because it tells you everything that's existing, the things that are missing, who's working in the areas. It is like a great starting point if you want to get involved. So you can really focus on the areas that fit your expertise or are of great the greatest interest for you. All right, that sounds very useful. 
That was very useful. Laurel, and thank you so much. I, th- I think we could do 10 of these with you, but uh, we really yeah, right. to <laughs> We could. We absolutely could because, well, medical is by far. Exactly. We just touched medical. Like, there's so many other standards we didn't even go into. We did. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, and I also have worked with the aerospace industry and the automotive industry right. and the energy industry. So many things happening and going on. I feel um, like we need to have four. Yeah, George is right. We need to have like four more of these. We can hit each industry, <laughs> like have its own uh, episode on the standards. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for being here today. Well, thank you. It was a pleasure. Always happy to talk about additive manufacturing. Awesome. And Max, thank you for being here as well. Thank you. And you, thank you for listening and have a great day. This is another episode of the 3D Pod. You've been listening to the 3D Pod. For more information on what you just heard or to subscribe, visit www.3dprint.com or follow us at 3dprint.com.